0: Good evening and welcome into the Lord's house again this evening as we have gathered to hear God speak to us again tonight from Revelation chapter 2 considering Satan's subtlety how he often works uh, in subtle ways rather than directly uh, confrontationally where we can take notice of him such that we need discernment we want to seek the Lord's help with that tonight. As we come to worship, let us stand and hear God's call to worship. Psalm 113, we read this. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is the one in whom we must trust. He is our help and our shield. That is the question that I ask. Congregation, in whom is your help? He greets you this evening. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals now to number 118b. The glorious gates of righteousness throw open unto me, and I will enter them with praise, O Lord, my God to thee. We want to enter into worship with praise this evening. Stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 8, 1 through 4, and 8 of number 118b. Tonight our psalm selection is Psalm 36, page 465 in your Bibles there in front of you, Psalm 36. Don't want to say too much about the psalm, it's fairly clear. It's set up something like a reverse of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 speaks of blessed is the man who keeps the word. Here we start with the wicked and how they... Act and how they are opposed to the word of God, setting that out first, and then speaking of the steadfast love of the Lord. The focus, the familiar words from this psalm are found in verse 9 In your light do we see light. We look to the Lord and hope to find or seek in him the light of life for us. Listen then to the reading of Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. That's how the wicked function. They are open to transgression. There's no fear of God before the wicked's eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. We believe that they're not going to be discovered. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Quite a description of the wicked. In contrast, the psalmist writes, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to arise. That a final concluding comment on what is the end of the evildoer. Therefore, we do not want to walk in that way, which is not a wise way or a good way, as verse 3 says, but rather to walk in the way of the Lord. We're going to respond with number 36B, 36B, and as there are a number of stanzas, I will kind of direct us as we're going along there so we don't lose our, our spot. Hopefully I won't lose my place. We're going to sing stanzas one, and then three, four, five, and six, and eight. One, three, four, five, and six, and then eight of 36B. time of congregational prayer. Oh Lord, in your light we see light. With you as the fountain of life, how desperately we need that light today in a world where darkness is so praised, where wickedness is set forth as that which is able to accomplish what the human heart wants to accomplish and and seems to be so, uh, so prosperous. We know, Lord, that in the end, evildoers will not inherit the world. Instead, they will reap what they have sown, that they will face judgment. So, Lord, we pray that we would not delight in wickedness, that we would not believe, that, not believe the lies that are told to us, that there is in wickedness a true treasure. Indeed, there is not. We are those who do not want to take transgression into our hearts. We want to fear you. We do not want to flatter ourselves before you, thinking that we can somehow sin and not bear the penalty. We recognize, O Lord, that we are to turn away from sin and to do what is right. And we pray that your steadfast love, O Lord, would, would lead us on in the way everlasting. You've given us time again today to hear your word to us. Open our ears and our hearts to your word. Give us eyes for that which lasts. Help us to see the everlasting truth of your word and the path upon which we are to walk. Lead us to passionately pursue holiness, to sacrifice for the right, to prioritize truth, to care about that which has eternal significance. Even while we find joy in living in this world, Pursuing many things that you set before us. We are so thankful for healthy bodies. We're so thankful for healthy minds that you give to us. That we can serve and that we can enjoy uh, all of uh, the many blessings that you give. But may our priorities be kept clear in that we seek to delight in you. To listen to you. To preach the word to ourselves that we might be corrected and comforted. Tonight, as we turn in your word, help us to see the schemes of our great adversary, the devil, that we might not fall prey to his subtlety and that we might also know the weakness of our own flesh, that we might cry out to you to stand firm in the sufficient grace that you give. Lord, transform us by your word Do not hold our sins against us. Renew our hearts. Lead us, Lord, to turn away from compromise and to walk in light, walk in the truth. Lord, what we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. What we need, provide in in great abundance. We pray that you would hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's turn to number 243. As we prepare to turn in God's word, we remember that his word is our firm foundation. How firm a foundation? We're going to sing stanzas one through four and six. One through four and six of number 243. Let's stand to sing. I invite you to turn in God's Word this evening to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be looking at the verses 12 through 17 tonight. Revelation 2, 12 to 17, John receiving the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory, how it is seen in many ways from different angles, John has walked with Jesus on earth, but now he sees him in a, in a deeper way, a glorious way, such, uh, such a different way that he doesn't really know how to describe what he sees. He has a hard time uh, describing what he sees, so he uses apocalyptic language, which the words are uh, used as symbols to point to the story behind the story, revealing the great battle between Jesus and Satan and Jesus' certain victory the war is played out on uh, the earth but Jesus is not absent though he has ascended into heaven he's not absent he is walking among the churches that's what we see in the opening verses of the book of Revelation we'll see that again here tonight we see there are similar issues as we look at the letter to the church in Pergamum tonight Uh, similar issues there in Pergamum as there were in Ephesus and in Smyrna And so we want to look at that, these verses, and then consider what God would say to us from his word this evening. Reading then God's word from Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you... Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God. May add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it this evening. The people of God, throughout the book of Revelation, Satan is depicted as a defeated foe, someone who's, who's, who's fighting mightily to try to gain ground and to uh, wage war almost in desperation against the people of God. He's seen in, in uh, very powerful ways where he's empowering the beast uh, to persecute Christ's church using the full power of the state and the point of the sword in other instances, however, we want to see that Satan is also depicted as one who is seducing the people of God. He is, as, a, as an adulteress, as a prostitute, he's seen in Revelation chapter 17, where he is trying to, to woo those who walk with the Lord to turn away from the truth. A more subtle approach as the father of lies. He acts as a seducer of the church. Well, in the book of Revelation, we not only read of the beast who makes war upon the saints, we also read of the prostitute who seduces the peoples of the earth. As I said, Revelation chapter 17. Unlike the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamum also faced an enemy from within. There were those in the church trying to lead the people to commit Spiritual adultery, to be unfaithful to God, giving themselves and their bodies to that which would be against God's word. Think about what is going on in the church of Ephesus and the church of Smyrna at this time as we come to the church of Pergamum. Well, in church at Ephesus, we read that they were commended for their defense of the truth and for removing the false teachers from among them. What had happened, however, was that they had abandoned their first love and Jesus was calling them to repent. Then he comes to Smyrna and he says they have fought the good fight of faith and that they were suffering and they would, some of them, uh, suffer unto death. And they were called to be faithful unto death. And that is the overarching theme, that continued theme in the book of Revelation, letters to the seven churches that were called to be faithful unto death that we might receive the gift of eternal life consider some of the commonalities with the background of the church at pergamum comparison to ephesus and smyrna there were lies and cultic worship uh, rampant in pergamum as in ephesus and in smyrna the city was a religious center it was not that far from smyrna about 60 miles and it had a temple to the goddess of rome and it was that which built temples to the emperors as well. Really acting a lot like the, the culture of that day. And isn't that true for us today? When, when, these, when these lies, when these, uh, these religions gain traction, they spread quickly. And soon, uh, people come together and they stand almost in, in, in unity, where they were formerly at odds with each other, in unity against the truth. What unites them is That they want to destroy the truth, that's their goal, their focus. Or to, in this case tonight, to seduce, to just lead to a compromise, to lead to a compromise that would lead astray. Well, here in uh, this time, Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum is not, well, move on, go try to find a, a safe place, flee to the hills find safer, greener pastures. The Lord doesn't doesn't often give that command, does he? In fact, rarely does he do that. He says, live faithfully, live carefully with uh, circumspection where you are. And that is a reminder to us that even as lies spread, we want to stay and speak truth in the midst of this culture. A few quotes about that. Missionary C.T. Studd said this, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That was his emphasis. He said, I'm going to minister right where it's most needed. Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around about their knees, employing them to stay, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. There's not an escapism here, is there? There's a very clear call and I think a faithful call to Scripture's command to speak truth where we are. Even as the culture rapidly changes and even as it, as it seems that the numbers are growing, the false worship, the false teachings. The Lord says, live right where you are. Call sinners to repentance. Befriend those who are lonely. Comfort those who are confused. Teach your children to be salt and light. To be faithful where the Lord has placed them. Well, by the late nineties, Pergamum had surpassed Smyrna as a center of emperor worship. What a what a what a thing to be known for. Worshiping the Emperor, worshiping the state. But don't we see that today where people want to be known to be worshiping where the, that which seems to be powerful, the state? We want to be on the right side of, of the discussion. We want to be found in the right camp, as it were. Not all that unlike today, is it? As we think about these Christians there in Pergamum. What was the cry there in Pergamum? Caesar is Lord! For their zeal in Pergamum, the Romans gave them a seat of government and said, we are honoring you for your zeal for the state, for the empire. We're going to give you a seat of government. And the cry went out, Caesar is Lord. Well, how difficult is that then for Christians to declare Jesus is Lord? There's there's bound to be conflict. There's bound to be a place where there is uh, a conflict. Now, obviously, Christians can live in any state at any time. It isn't about where we live. But we need to remember that wherever we live, our allegiance is to the Lordship of Christ above all else. Jesus is Lord is the word that governs our lives and causes us or helps us in our decision-making process. What is it we will do? How will we walk? What way will God be our light, as we heard in in Psalm 36? In you, Lord, is light. Or will we compromise because we want to be walking with the seeming powers of the age? You remember what I said last week. There's there's this cry, all we want, the non-believer says, all we want is neutrality. Well, there is no such thing. We have to we have to get over that notion of this neutrality. All we really want is neutrality. Stop talking about your religion, your faith. The point we have to remember and we can't let go of is this. It's not whether those made in the image of God are going to have a religion. It's which religion they have. We're created to worship. The question is whom or what shall we worship? So the Christians in Pergamum had a a challenge. They were not participating in the false worship of the Roman government and had been imprisoned, And some of them even had been killed. Antipas was such a person. Verse 13 there. They faced the full wrath of the satanically empowered beast. Who we read in Revelation 13.8 was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Conquer them in what sense? Well, in the sense of taking their physical lives. But we know that Satan does not have the ultimate victory for, as we heard already last week, those who conquer, those who endure to the end, will escape the second death. Verse 11 of chapter 2. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death or the coming judgment. How does Jesus identify himself in the face of a powerful beastly government. What does he say? Interesting, the picture that he uses here. The government's giving judgment upon the people. Antipas has been killed, and Jesus introduces himself. These are the words of him who has what? The sharp two-edged sword. It's going back to the vision that John sees in chapter 1. What is the imagery of that sword? Well, Christ is sovereign in all things. Sovereign in this. That the word of God can pierce the heart and convert. And that he bears the sword of judgment. Ultimately, it's not Rome that's going to make the final judgment as to where we end up or what we inherit. The state will not determine that. Christ determines that. And he works mercifully, graciously to convert. And also he says, recognize my lordship. For I am the one who will bring ultimately the sword of final judgment. The sword of the Savior had delivered some from deception here in Pergamum, this group of believers. And they had even been faithful to death in this place where Satan was dwelling as best we can understand that, that is referring to the fact that there is worship of the emperor as opposed to God. They're worshiping other gods and Satan is the, the one behind this, uh, this worship, behind this turning away from God. The Lord would also come with sword to, re, to, to, to judge finally, but also to remove those in, in the congregation who would not repent, but who are seeking to lead astray. Verse 16, he says, I will come to you soon and war against those who are seeking to lead you astray. Do so with a sword of my mouth. There's a picture of discipline, church discipline. If there are those who are not walking in light of the truth, there is to be a severe judgment brought with hopes of reconciling. But ultimately, if they do not repent... They were cut off. Jesus says the real power is not with the state, though there, though there seems to be all this, this emphasis on the emperor and on, on the goddess of Rome and so forth and so on. You're worshiping the, the, these uh, religious systems and the, the power of the state. But he said the true power, the ultimate judgment rests with me. Jesus tells the church that they have liars in their midst. Verse 14, he says this, You have been holding fast to my name, verse 13. You did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And so, also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, those who are, who are calling them to be unfaithful. Back in Numbers 25, we read about this account of, of, of Balaam, uh, where he's, uh, he is not, you remember, given the, the, the right to curse the Israelites, whom God has said, I have blessed. He says, I cannot do it, I cannot speak any words which God has not given me to speak, the authority to speak. But he says, I have a plan for you, Balak. Here's a way that you can get them to to be uh, uh, disciplined by their God, even cut off. Lead them to become unfaithful. Find what they desire. Consider what they want most. Is it trade with the nations, perhaps? Is it, is it the, their, their sexual expressions? What, what is it? Find that and lead them astray, lead them to compromise. And they will soon forget their God and pursue that which they want most. And God often tests us, doesn't he? He says, What do you want most? What desires do you have? Where are those places that you are tempted to compromise? And he says, Consider. Ask yourself these questions What do I prioritize? What am I most desirous of having? So Balaam comes, and there is Baal worship at Peor there in in Numbers 25. And what happens, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, we read in verse 1. And they served these other gods, and they were compromising, and they were committing sexual immorality. They were acting unfaithfully, not only in body, but in spirit. This is where I want to talk a bit about the end game of Satan, where it is not always, he's not always appearing in fire and fury. In fact, very often, he's appearing in a very subtle way. If you enjoy C.S. Lewis, you've probably read Screwtape Letters, and in those letters, he speaks, uh, uh, Screwtape speaks to Wormwood, that one of the junior demons, and says, don't work in such a way as to awaken the patient, that is the Christian, To your presence. Don't don't come directly at them and, and, and wake them up and say, Oh, I see what's happening here. Subtly, ever so subtly work. Find out what they desire. Find out what their priorities are, their weaknesses, and exploit them. And then take those weaknesses which are natural to them and get them to think that they're becoming more and more alive because, after all, they're feeling more and more like themselves. It's what comes naturally. But you see, what God says is, I want you to put the old nature to death because your new nature is truly who you are created to be That is why I give my spirit that you might come alive to who you truly are to be. Namely, the child of God. With right priorities. With right understanding. With with right uh, uh, passions. God gives us passions. Strong passions. Strong desires. But those too are affected by sin. And can be perverted and can be led, uh, lead us astray. If we think, well, now that is what makes me feel most alive. And therefore, it must be right. You see, if we have a pleasure ethic as our primary ethic, what makes me feel pleasure, and it's not informed by the word of God, we are then very quickly led astray by the subtle attack of the devil. He doesn't come in fire and fury, he observes what our weaknesses are and he exploits them. And then he tells us, he surrounds us with people who say, yes, that's fun. Don't you feel alive when you're doing this? And very soon we forget that God is to be transforming us. We're not to become more and more Like we once were, Paul says, we've died to that. God tells us we are dead to that. We are to come alive to what God would have for us. To keep all of our passions and priorities in place under the lordship of Christ. Well, Jesus describes what's happening in Pergamum. He says, yes, there's stuff going on outside of you. The great uh, uh, state, the beastly state of Rome... But I have this against you. There are things happening among you that are leading you astray. And it looks fine because it's passions, it's desires that you have, but which have become overgrown, out of place, leading you away from God's plan and purpose in your life. Pergamum is an example of how things can change slowly, almost imperceptibly on the inside. Pergamum is being tempted to compromise. They have this. They have held fast to his name. They have denied their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, there is a stumbling block in their midst. And Jesus says, you need to address that. That needs to be addressed and removed from among you. Repent. Turn from it. Go in the exact opposite direction. People of God, Satan is very subtle. He doesn't lead us to ask the questions that we should ask. He wants us to follow the passions that we have and pursue them beyond the boundaries God has given. Here in this context we see in Balaam's day, Israel is sexually immoral. But again, we want to understand that, that, is, that any sort of unfaithfulness is what we need to stand over against. Inappropriate speech. Inappropriate emotion. Sinful Actions of all kinds. Impure thoughts of all kinds. Priorities which lead us away from that which we ought to put ahead of all else. That got me to thinking, what kind of questions do I need to ask myself? What what matters most to me? Oh, I confess the faith. I state what I believe concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, but then as I walk out of this place and Monday morning comes and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and the rest of the week comes, what does my life look like? Is it in keeping with those priorities? Am I teaching that to those over whom I'm responsible? I need to ask myself those questions. What is of greater priority to me? Sport or service? Just, just, to, just to use one example. Now, there's no perfect ratio there. I'm not looking for a, a percentage. What I'm asking myself and what you need to be asking yourself is, what matters most to me? It's not an either or. I'm not talking about an either or. You have to either be all in with sports or all in with service. It can't be both. The Lord gives us wonderful many different opportunities in life but what am I pursuing what are my children seeing is a priority for me which I am now imparting to them and saying this is way more important you need to be out practicing right now because you got to get better because I want you to get the this award let's say Or maybe it's fundraising. Oh, you did so well raising funds for the for for the school, and it's really all about that. Getting that ribbon, getting that award for making the most money. Do we lose our perspective? When we're focusing on those things which are not primary. They're not to be ignored. But they're not primary. Do I talk to my children about their spiritual life, their spiritual disciplines? Do I ask them what they did in catechism? Do I tell them to do their catechism, to do their Sunday school? Or do I say, well, you know, we're out late Saturday night. We've got to get that last, that last activity in. And when they come home, they're just spent. We want to make sure they stay awake in church. We don't want the pastor to see them with their eyes closed. What what's going on? Even and now here's where I want to draw in Pergamum a little bit, even in a religious community, we can have we can lose sight of what our foundation was Originally, and begin to prioritize and think about other things as more important. How much money can we raise? How, how effective are our programs? Are we known so that people say, I want to be a part of that group because they're successful by worldly standards? Or are we asking ourselves, are we known for our character and our virtue? our hatred of sin, and our love for the sinner? What are we known for? We ask questions. We ought to be asking questions to measure our spiritual lives in keeping with God's word. The word in Romans 12 is to keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And then I ask myself, is it more of an accident when I'm in a conversation with someone about spiritual things? Or is it something that I'm actually working toward? Is my goal with my neighbor to get to that point? Or is it just kind of accidental? Oh, you're a pastor. Oh yeah, uh, do you know Jesus? Mm-hmm. should have been talking about this a long time ago or at least directing conversation. Is it accidental or is it something that I'm Intentional about what is it that I think life looks like? Satan very subtly says, "Well, you know what life is. You know what really it's all about. It's being busy. It's it's about being involved in everything. Getting getting my kids, getting myself involved in everything. I'm supposed to volunteer. I'm supposed to be. We are finite, dear people. We can't do everything." Nor should we do everything such that we can't do that which is most important. And that is to be living and serving the Lord. I had this conversation just this week. I was saying, oh, things are getting busier. As this, they were saying, how are you doing? I said, things are getting busier as the sports season comes upon us. And the person said to me, welcome to the real world. That's just how it is. No, I just kind of took that in stride, but then I thought to myself, well, "Wait a minute, is that what reality? Is that what I'm pursuing? Being more busy? Is that am, am I now alive because I'm I'm more busy than I was before, and that that's just proof that I'm really getting at it." Is that how I'm supposed to react to busyness? That, oh wow, good, I'm 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 I must be doing something right, because man, I'm I'm really going 110 miles an hour. I think it's dangerous to think that way. It's dangerous to pursue such a such a plan that I've got to have every moment of every day involved in something. That keeps me moving and doesn't allow me time to think. What would God have me to do? And then my life is measured by my schedule. Look, I don't have a spare moment anywhere in my planner. That tells you I'm really alive. The point I'm trying to make is, that's what Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum. you can be led astray by things that seem very natural and, 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 and the, more you, the more you engage, you think, oh, I've, I'm feeling more and more alive because I, 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 this is what I like. Well, just because we like something doesn't mean it always should be our number one priority. In fact, very often, we set up idols, things that we like, that we prioritize, that we give ourselves to, resources and time, that ought to be Reined in. You see, Satan sees what you and I say and what you and I do. He sees what you and I want. He knows what you and I will pursue. Particularly if he puts people around us that encourage us. Yeah, you know what, you ought to get involved in that. Yeah, you know what, my kids are involved in that, and that you should be there too. Yeah, you know what, you should really be involved in this group and. And pretty soon you think, boy, this is, this is, I guess, what it is. It's getting involved in everything to the hurt of the relationship that I have with my Lord. Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, you have those in the church who are committing spiritual adultery. This needs to be addressed. Sin can be a tidal wave or a trickle. And it can destroy either way. It can devastate either way. Tidal wave or trickle. The writer of Hebrews says something I think very helpful in this context. Hebrews 3 verse 13 says this. Exhort one another every day. As long as it is is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, by the deceptiveness of sin, by, by Satan's subtlety, by the weakness of your own flesh, because you are not thinking about what matters most, what you love most. Jesus says this, verse 17. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who has a conquering faith, a a true faith, a living faith, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Who is the one who overcomes? John says it this way. Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And its priorities. And its gods. And its idols. Everyone who receives the manna from heaven which gives life. The bread of life. Jesus Christ the righteous one overcomes. Where else do we look for life? Manna? Bread? Picture of sustenance? Where else do we look for life? What is What does Jesus say to the disciples after he said some very difficult things? And he says, You're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to make some changes. And and, and the world's not going to like you. He says to them, This, are are you going to depart as well? Will that be your way of life? And Peter says, What? To whom else shall we turn? You have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? For the life which alone is life. Peter didn't even really understand what he was saying. He's standing before the one who is life. Who is his salvation. And the one who is hid in Christ is kept forevermore. For as Paul says in Colossians 3, when Christ appears, those who are hidden in him, those who are believers, will also appear with him in glory. That's what God has for us a coming glory. But he says, be careful how you walk, be careful, be mindful. To overcome the world, this word, "who" he who overcomes, to overcome the world is to gain ever-increasing victory over sinful patterns of life, over spiritual unfaithfulness. A transformation that is seen in the way we use our time and our bodies and our money and everything else. It isn't just coming and saying, well, we've participated. Remember the Israelites, they all partook of the manna, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. What else does he say there in 1 Corinthians? They all ate of the manna in the wilderness, but not everyone showed himself to be a worthy recipient of the hidden manna, Christ in God, or Christ in glory. Some died in the wilderness because they did not have true faith. They grumbled against God and they said, this bread, this is how you're going to sustain us? This is life? And did, what did they do? They ate and drank and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. They were sexually immoral, 1 Corinthians 10. They had a self-love and God, it says in verse 5, was displeased with them. Those who overcome... Those who have a true faith, to them, Jesus says, I will give of the hidden manna, he who is in glory, hidden from our sight, but is coming again, the bread of life. I will give them a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. God gives his spirit to those who receive it that we might have assurance of everlasting life, that we are not finding in ourselves our confidence for forgiveness of sins but in Christ we have a new name and that white stone is a picture of the purity that picture of Christ shed blood given for the complete forgiveness of our sins what does John see in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14 he sees that very thing that those who have been washed by the blood of Christ are made pure One of the elders addressed John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Verse 14, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. People of God, there is great tribulation, and it is increasing. But there is victory in Christ. And there is a call to ever-increasing faithfulness. We don't, as the standard goes down for goodness in our culture, say, Oh, well, then that means I can also scale back. I don't want to stick out after all. In fact, God wants his people to be those who are known for holiness. as those who repent of sin as those who love the sinner as those who point to Christ as the way, the truth and the life we gain entrance into heaven by feeding on Christ by faith he is our life the hidden manna we gain entrance into heaven for he is our purity declaring us to be children of God He calls us to undivided allegiance. He says, repent, remove unfaithfulness from among you. Do not be led astray. Beware of misplaced priorities which lead to spiritual compromise and unfaithfulness. And do not forget but rejoice in Christ who strengthens you and gives you a new name. The one who is your life. For this is the comfort of the believer, that in life and in death, I belong to him, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, such that the power of the devil has no final effect upon me, but that I now want to live for him, empowered by the Spirit of God. Go then, dear people of God, to live for Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are in times of tribulation. We are in times where there is compromise, even in the household of faith. Indeed, there is very troubling compromise. And it is disorienting and confusing to us to see confession in Christ, but a disowning of your commands in practice. Lord, there are so many ways in which we do not walk as we ought. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit that in Him we might know that way of life and live in the light. Send us forth, we pray, with a boldness, with a confidence that you go with us, with a love for the lost. That they would see in us, not a, a pride, but rather an assurance that there is life given to those who believe and trust in you. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Turn to number 492. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. We're going to stand to sing those six stanzas, number 492. Father in heaven, as we one day will see Christ as he is, giving him the praise that we ought, we pray that you would send your spirit, that we would do that more and more in our daily lives, in our word and in our deed, showing that we want most of all to make much of Christ. We thank you for the organization. Word indeed, in the way it seeks to address physical need as well as spiritual hunger, we ask that as we give for that ministry that you would bless the labors of their hands, the words of their mouth, that nations would come to believe in your Son and praise him as they ought, along with your people everywhere. Hear us, we ask, for his sake. Amen. Please stand as we confess our faith together in our great and glorious and redeeming triune God as we use the words of the Apostles' Creed in response to that question, Christian, what is it that you believe? We say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. People of God, all glory belongs to the one who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. He has committed himself to that. He has provided for that in his son, Jesus Christ, who is your righteousness, your holiness, your redemption. In him you have a new name, and he is the one who goes with you into this new week, strengthening you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.